BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. A few weeks ago, I realized that it's 2022. I know, I'm a bit late to the party, but you know how the last few years have been. And that means that I've been hosting podcasts for a decade now. And that made me think about how serendipitous my start in podcasting was. In case you didn't know, back in 2011, I hosted a TV show on the Oprah Winfrey Network called Miracle Detectives. I was a scientific foil to a journalist who believed in miracles, and we flew around the U.S. investigating people's accounts of the miraculous or supernatural. To promote the show, I was asked to appear on some radio shows and podcasts. What's a podcast? I remember thinking. Well, one of those podcasts was called Point of Inquiry, and a few months later, I ended up as one of its hosts. Then, several years later, Adam Isaac, Chris Mooney, and I launched this show. And now podcasting is a big part of what I do. But around the time of my introduction to podcasts, another podcaster was also getting started, one whose work I admired and whose show name I coveted. You are not so smart. Man, why didn't we think of that? Well, because we're not David McRaney. David has been hosting that podcast for as long as I've been hosting one, and his book, You Are Not So Smart, is on the bookshelf where I keep the books that I most often reach for just an arm's length away. I've admired David for a long time because he's really mastered the literature on how our brains fool us into thinking we know more than we do, or that we are rational creatures. And he has great book titles. His next one was called You Are Now Less Dumb. (laughs) And for a long time, he was just as sure as I was that you just can't change people's minds. At least not how we think you should be able to. After all, no matter how elegantly I laid out the evidence on miracle detectives, No matter how simple the explanation and compelling the science, I don't think I changed a single mind on the show. To be fair, that wasn't my goal. I didn't set out to yuck anyone's yum or trivialize a person's life-changing experience. I think there's room both for mystery and science. And mostly, I think it's important that we continue to have awe, whether it comes from spirituality or from science itself, as it does for me. But I was surprised at how vehemently people held on to their views in the face of contradictory evidence. And evidence of the challenges of changing minds is even more obvious today, as people in the U.S. and other countries become more and more divided by ideology and separated by filter bubbles. So imagine how surprised I was when David's new book came across my desk. And this time, 
It was all about how minds change. Et tu, David? Can we really change minds? Well, that seems worth exploring. David McRaney, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Wow, here I am. I don't. I did. I did not intend to do a terrible Christopher Walken just then. Uh, I really am happy to be here. Wow, this is so cool. Very rarely do I get to be a guest on a show with this much overlap. But like the Venn diagram might as well be a circle for this one. So, thank you so much for having me here. It's a great honor, great pleasure. I'm really excited to be with a fellow uh, thinky brain mind social science nerd people. So it sounds like this will be really fun. Yeah. And I'm part of your fan base. I, I love your work. I, you know, I think you've just done just a fabulous job um, of illustrating some of the cognitive biases we all live with and and don't know about. And I was really actually excited to read how minds change. Um, but before we get to how minds change, if there happen to be any listeners that don't know who you are, which I doubt, uh, but hey, at least my mom uh, needs to know. Can you tell me um, a little bit about sort of your background and, you know, your your time as a, as a I guess, a, a, a newscaster, TV journalist? <laughs> Let's start there. I've, I, I have been in front of a camera and done some local newscasting stuff way back in the past. That was a very brief period of time in my life. I could go way back to when I used to do all sorts of weird things like work construction and sell leather coats, that kind of thing. But instead of that, let's go to... I went to school to be a psychologist and then halfway through decided I'd rather be a journalist just because I got instant validation from writing opinion pieces. And I really fell in love with that side of things. And I spent a lot of time working in newspapers and then worked my way into TV news where I was just doing the back end, sort of the, uh, the website stuff. And then that eventually I wanted to write. I wanted to go back into the field. And I started a, a blog called You Are Not So Smart, which was mainly about self-delusion, biases, fallacies, heuristics, the stuff that I thought was fun, the things like the person swap experiment, invisible gorilla stuff. Before that was super mainstream. I'm being like a psychology hipster with that. Like I could write a blog about that back when blogs were a big deal. That led to a book deal. And that book deal led to creating a podcast to try to like promote things. And I was lucky a second time to be in the podcast world right as that exploded. And ever since then, I've been really trying to create a podcast called You Are Not So Smart, where I deeply explore all these things. But if you've listened for a while, the last like five years, I've just sort of gone out into strange territory with it. Whatever is interesting became what I would put on the show. And luckily, I've been able to get really great guests, people who are people who research this sort of stuff. And somewhere in there, I became very obsessed with the idea of how minds change, why they resist, uh, right as, again, lucky a third time, or maybe unlucky on this one, because it was right as conspiratorial thinking was going super mainstream in the politics and everything, and also the concept of alternate facts and uh, post-truth. All those things were happening as I was trying to write a book about it. So the new book that's out, How Minds Changes, just that entire obsession over the last few years. So that's who I am. I, I guess I would label myself as, you could say, writer, author, science journalist, something like that. I make stuff about this stuff. Yeah. Well, that would make my mom very happy. She now is feels like she's part of the conversation already, I'm sure. But I, I want to like stick a little bit with what, what I think, in some ways, uh, up until this book, you've been most well known for. 
you, along with me and a number of other individuals in this space, were kind of known for the fact that while we would like to change people's minds, people's minds are hard to change. And so tell us, tell me a little bit about like, you, you mentioned this in the introduction to your book, the way in which a lot of us have just thrown up our hands and said, it's just not possible. Like you can't, you know, you can't use evidence to change a person's mind. Facts don't work. Walk me through like what, what your thinking was, say five years ago, I don't know, or three years ago. I was one of the worst. Um, <laughs> I think if, if anyone who was really into this stuff probably remembers the predictably irrational thinking fast and slow, and I was sort of the coffee table book in that space, uh, the You're Not So Smart was in there. And there was this wave of celebrating how flawed and irrational human beings are, sort of thinking about if you lock your keys in your car, you scale that up to that's why we have climate change, basically. <laughs> and there's truth in that. All those studies are still studies that we have evidence that says something. But as science goes forward, the evidence can be interpreted in many different ways. New evidence comes along. Some things replicate, some things don't. Still, though, I was proselytizing for a long time when it got to the point where I was doing lectures. People would ask in Q&As, like, hey, my, I have a family member who thinks Barack Obama is a reptile. And I'm like, oh, a real reptilian? Like, yeah, they've got, they fall into the reptilian thing. Or it could be before Flat Earth was was something we'd all heard about. It was something like that. And when people would come to me with those things, I would just fall back on that sort of pop psychology wave and say, well, you know, backfire effect, blah, 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 stuff like this. You're just not ever going to be able to reach out to that person. That was really where I was at. But I didn't like that I was saying that for some reason. Something inside me just turned sideways when I would give that sort of advice or give that sort of what I thought was an insight. And as that was happening... I remembered, uh, as it was happening, attitudes were changing about same-sex marriage and just LGBTQ issues in general in the United States. The norms were changing, attitudes were changing, and eventually the laws were changing. And I come from the Deep South, and when I was a print journalist and doing stuff for TV and moderating like Facebook and things like that, I was right there looking at people being very angry and upset about same-sex marriage every day. And not just that, everything else you can imagine, every wedge issue that was the wedge issue of the time. And I remember when like our meteorologists would attempt to engage with people on Facebook, they would just get very angry and upset, even to the point they would come to the station. And I don't know, I guess they were going to try to beat us up. We had to call the police to, to, to keep us safe from people who were angry that we were talking about climate change on our Facebook page. And with same-sex marriage, I uh, have family members who were affected by this. I had close friends. And I remember the arguments had the same patina of the wedge arguments you see today about gun control. It's hard to really believe that because we're on the other side of it. And so we've all changed so much. We've updated what we think and feel about things. And we're in a different social environment. But just 10 or so years ago, people argued online with the same anger, fervor, and vitriol they do today about any wedge issue about that issue. And I noticed as it was happening, it it seemed if you weren't an activist, if you weren't someone who was deeply affected by it or had been part of the, the movement for a long time, it felt like it just changed overnight. It felt like it was like, whoop, and now we all see this differently. And when I looked into it, it was, uh, it was a very rapid change. It was one of the most rapid social changes in recorded history. It took place over the course of about 12 years. But I was lucky enough to have Hugo Mercier on the uh, podcast, who is one of the 
greatest scientist in my mind, and he has been hugely impactful on my thinking. And he suggested, hey, check out, that happens a lot. You should take a look at it. And sure enough, when you look at the history of social changes in, in the United States and elsewhere, you often have these very long periods of status quo, and then a very rapid shift, and then a new status quo takes over for it. And it looked like punctuated equilibrium to me, like when, when species do that, when they're, you know, their phenotype changes. And I was like, I really just want to know what, what the hell's going on here. Like, I don't think I actually understand this. And I'm acting as if I'm a person who understands these things. And the way the book unfolded was I, the inciting moment really is I went to Jim Alcock, who researches belief. And he's been researching belief for more than 40 years. And I asked him, hey, could you define the word belief for me? This is an old journalist trick where you say, I'm five years old, pretend I'm five years old. What's a belief? And he actually told me, he, he leaned back in his chair and went, that is tough. <laughs> and I felt the floor drop out underneath me because it was, I was already in it and I'd already had a publisher on board. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to do what I used to do, which is go talk to some experts, take what they tell me, take the books they told me to go read, take the literature that's relevant, translate all that for you, and then say in, in a way that's fun and approachable. It wasn't going to work that way. So what I instead did is I embedded myself, and this goes back to, this is much more of like a, a literary journalism type approach where I embedded myself with people who are in cults or just left them, pseudo cults, conspiratorial communities, spent time with activists and experts, people who are attempting to actually persuade. Then I took what they told me to the experts and said, can you break this down? And they were like, aha, yes, this has this in it, this has this in it. So it's a different approach. So there's a come up of it's in the book. There's like an arc of the book where I'm changing my mind too. I don't start out with an authoritative voice, but somewhere midway, it starts to kind of unfold that. It's where I can start to feel like I kind of understand what's happening. And it goes back to that flawed and irrational thing for as you were asking, which is, I now don't really see this uh, resistance, nor do I see this uh, difficulty we have when it comes to persuasion and arguing and deliberation as an example of how flawed and irrational humans are. It's more just, it's more as Hugo Mercier would say, how biased and lazy we are because of the way argumentation actually functions. And thanks, Tom Stafford also was hugely influential in that he's shown me that a lot of the research that that first wave of pop psychology into irrationality it was most of it was based off of studies where you study a lot of people, but each person's being studied as an individual in isolation, and the two things go together. I've said I've started using this as the peanut butter and chocolate of my comeuppance is that people who are studied in isolation perform poorly on tasks because they're producing arguments in a in a biased and lazy way, but there's no one else to receive it. Whereas if you take that exact same study, something like the ways and selection task or something from the cognitive reflection test, and you give it to people in a group, you get a very different outcome. And I've actually been using that in lectures. I'll, I'll stop talking after I say this last thing here, which is I'm very excited about this topic. Now what I'll do in lectures, and I've been testing this and I thought it was fun, and I've, I've mentioned it in the book, I'll take something from the cognitive reflection task, like um, the widget problem, which is... Um, uh, if it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long will it take a hundred machines to make a hundred widgets? And I'll ask everyone quietly to give me an answer to that question, but like, just keep it in your head. And then I say, is there anyone in the crowd who has a really, who really feels like they have the answer to this question? Like you really know you have the answer and one or two hands will go up. I'll give them an, the microphone and say, what's the answer? And they'll say five minutes. 
and you'll hear the whole audience go, there's all this murmuring. And then I'll say, please give me your reasoning. And then they will explain the whole deal behind why that logic puzzle isn't really a logic puzzle. And everyone in the room will go, ah, yeah, okay, I get it. And you get the outcome of the the research that Tom Stafford is championing and Hugo Mercy and Dan Sperber are championing, championing, which is if I was to ask everyone individually and take their individual answers, we'd end up with a room where almost everyone was wrong. But if you instead give that one person who has the right answer the chance to explain it to everyone else, you end up with a room where everyone is pretty much right. And that's a very different way of looking at how we produce and evaluate arguments. And it seems very applicable to the platforms in which we find ourselves mostly arguing today, where we are in isolation, throwing arguments into a big pile, and they don't really facilitate that other side of things as well. So that's a big part of the comeuppance of the book. And that's, uh, if I don't stop talking about it, I'll keep going until we run out of time. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested. I'm fascinated by it. But one of the things that I, I found, like, what was a moment where I sat up in my chair as I was reading your book was this, there's this idea that, you know, arguing is built in to sort of how our brains work in, in the way in which we even just like listen to each other and communicate. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, that even that we think of it as a kind of modern issue, you know, that it's been caused mainly or exacerbated at least by filter bubbles and social media, etc. But you're pointing out that actually, there is this like, it's very hard for a person to listen to someone else, you know, claim a fact or say, make a statement, and not like, evaluate our own reaction, our own, like whether we think that statement is true or false, right? Like it's not, (laughs) which, which doesn't, if you you stop to think about it for a minute, (laughs) it's not obvious that that would be the way evolution would have gotten us here, right? It's not obvious, but it's one of those things that like you get a very, oh yeah, of course, once it's framed in a certain way, like I've done these little experiments with uh, Misha Globerman we've been calling them the conversation lab. And we just do this thing where we have people tell us about an argument that they're, they keep getting in. And then we have uh, one of us pretends to be the person who told the story and the other person, but then we get an improv person to play the other person in the argument. And then we let that person step out of the argument and watch the argument that they've been having take place. And, and, and people even <laughs> what happens is what always, I know you've experienced this where, if you get out of that subjective frame and you get into an objective frame, you start seeing all the flaws in what you're doing. Like, Because if you ever see two people arguing, it looks silly often where you're like, that person's doing this and that person's doing that. And that person can't see what they're doing and that person can't see what they're doing. But when you're in it yourself, you're in a different state of mind. In the book, we talk about the interactionist model, which is, that's another thing from Mercy and Sperber where they have a great book about this. Even though I'm supposed to be promoting how minds change, I often end up saying, you also should get the enigma of reason, which goes, it's not as uh, like uh, for a public audience, I think as much as how minds change, but it is incredible. It's, it's, a, it's a very deep dive into their interactionist model, which they used to call the argumentative model. The concept in there is we are social primates. We're ultra social primates, and we care a great deal about what other people think about us. The great Will Storr has a book about this, uh, the, the status game. And we are very concerned with reputation management in most scenarios. That is also what reasoning is all about. So the way they frame it and the way that I now frame it going forward is psychologically speaking, reasoning ain't logic. Reason is coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe that are plausible and therefore reasonable, meaning 
that if you presented it to your most trusted peers in your in-group, they would say, that's a justification for what you're thinking, feeling, and doing. So this plays into something I'm sure that like this is the foundation of you are not so smart, the introspection illusion that the antecedents of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are often hidden to us. That's why we have things like, you know, therapy. So we can try to get in there as like, I wonder what I'm actually, what's actually driving this, what's motivating this. So we all start with a some sort of drive or motivation that leads to some sort of attitude. There's some nature and nurture in there. There's experiences we've we had. They have these all these social costs and rewards that are plugged into it. And depending on the information put in front of us, if it's novel or ambiguous or it's uncertain, we'll arrive at some level of certainty. We'll disambiguate it. We will try to make it make sense in our models by assimilation and accommodation to get to make it not be novel, uncertain, or ambiguous. And then we'll come up with some sort of justification, explanation, or rationalization for whatever it is we have come to at the end of that process. And that becomes the thing. Like if I ask you how you feel about gun control or vaccination, or if the earth is flat or round, you would say, here's how I feel about that. And then I ask you why, and you may present to me this thing that came out of that process and it gets at the very end of that process. And then if I feel if I disagree with you on this, I will say, well, what have you looked at this? And I'm now going to give you the things that came out of the end of that process on my end. So my reasoning has arrived at these are pretty good justifications for the way I feel about it. And you have your good justifications for how, how you feel about it. And we often interact with each other in that argumentative, deliberative frame where we're just trying to get these, these justifications to fight it out. And this doesn't seem to work. I don't know if you've done this recently. Uh, I have many times. Uh, that doesn't seem to ever move anybody. In fact, it makes me feel like I'm more right than I was before I started that argument. And you feel the same thing walking away from it. And oddly enough, in the book, I use the dress as a way of trying to get into the neuroscience of what's going on there. There's a model that uh, Pascal Wallach and Michael Karlovich put together. They call it SurfPad. They're just real cheeky, really, really cheeky scientists. And surf pad means um, in moments of substantial uncertainty, ramified or, or fort priors will lead to uh, disagreement, uh, substantial disagreement and assumptions. The A is assumptions. Just meaning there's a line and everything I uh, described is before the line. If we were getting like weirdly Freudian, we'd say, you know, these are unconscious things that we're doing. Then consciously we produce this reason for And the reason we're producing reasons is itself something that we aren't really aware of. But we engage each other at the level of the disagreement without any interest in introspecting on our side or cognitive empathy for why another person would have felt that way. And I use the dress as the example because if you're trying to, and I'm sure everyone's familiar with the dress, it's, a, it's the one that some people saw black and blue and some people saw white and gold. The real reason people see it differently is a whole lot of neuroscience stuff that's really fun to talk about. But I'll table that for just just so I can get to the point really quick. Is that if you got to do an argument with somebody over that, and you wanted to to say I'm the way I see it is the right way to see it, and the way you see it is the wrong way to see it, you deny both sides the opportunity to have a conversation about why do you think we disagree about this in the first place, and moving into that domain gives you an opportunity to discover ways you're both right, you're both wrong. It allows you to go, if you whichever metaphor you prefer, the deep you get to the deeper or the higher truth when you start trying to go backwards through that processing chain instead of trying to let the end of that, the conclusions battle it out. And that's something that is deeply supported by the interactionist model and all the research that they've done into it, where they 
do all these cool experiments where they have people uh, try to solve like word problems and then they word problems that it's pretty easy to get a wrong answer to. And then they ask them to explain their, their reasoning. And then they tell them, okay, I want you to evaluate some other people's answers. And then, then they trick them because some of the answers they're looking at are their own answers. So when they don't trick them uh, and they know that it's their answer, they, they rarely see any of the flaws in their arguments. But if they do trick them and they think it's somebody else's, they often, like the majority of people, will see the flaws in their reasoning. And the hypothesis there is that since we evolved as, as social primates and our survival depended on group survival, we really are set up to reach consensus on what we're going to do or what our plans are. We're really geared up to try to form a uh, worldview that we can all agree upon as we move forward. And that means the thing that requires the least cognitive labor or the best use of cognitive labor is to produce very biased and lazy reasons for what you intend to do or what you think and feel, and then offload that to the group where the real cognitive labor can be applied, where everyone can, can together evaluate those things and then settle on what's the best thing to do. We've all experienced that when we just tried to figure out where we're going to go eat. Like if you go watch a movie with like four friends and you're like, what do you want to go get? What do you want to go do? Everyone just kind of throws out the, the, the thing that is very strongly what they want. So that's the bias part. And that what's lazy, the first thing that comes to mind. And then the actual decision takes place in the dynamic with everybody talking to each other. It's sort of the 12 angry men thing. And culture itself, according to the interactionist model, is 12 angry men at scale. And it just so happens that one-on-one, -on -one, we often, if we're very motivated, if we get very angry about the issue at hand, if there's a lot of social costs involved, we won't uh, enter that sort of framework. And especially online where that's um, many of the platforms, engagement is really what's being uh, promoted on those things. It's not useful for engagement to create platforms where it's easier to do the evaluation than it is the production. Production creates a lot of engagement because in that space, you can just let conclusions argue it out all day long. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It reminded me of like this experience that I had, you know, when I was a teenager or, you know, early college or in college. I spent a lot of time in college. So I have to like break down the 10 years I spent in college into like early and late. Wow. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but, uh, you know, those, those like amazing 2 a.m. conversations with some new friend about like religion or philosophy or something. And what was so exciting was when you find someone with whom you can have this discussion and you and you find these meeting points. And there's like there's it's like rewarding to suddenly discover that you both agree about, you know, some, you know, fundamental philosophical premise that either is is different from what a lot of other people that you've encountered think or feel. But there's also this 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 kind of discovery of common beliefs and rationality that I I think what you're what you're writing about what you're talking about is is kind of touching upon, right? It's like why would this be something that we continue to do and it does seem to be very binding ultimately in terms of like making social bonds with someone else. Yeah, of course, cuz like we you need to be able to Trust is so important to this. I, I eventually arrive at, I don't really believe in this whole idea of post-truth, not the way that it's usually argued, the idea that facts don't matter anymore, facts aren't going to work. Uh, they work just fine. In fact, many of the, a lot of the research done by uh, Pointer like, shows that fact-checking works great, especially if you prime the person to, to do the fact-checking. I th- uh, Gordon Pennycook's work talks about how he, you could just tell people, hey, before you read this article, it's really important that you try to maintain some sort of accuracy. If you prime people to have an accurate, have accuracy goals, they often will carefully evaluate what they're looking at. It's not the facts that are the issue is the, it's the, in an information ecosystem that we, that we have found ourselves within a bit of epistemic chaos taking place where it's hard to determine who to trust. And we're also in a period of high anxiety and, and, you know, strong political partisanship where you're really careful about, what ideas you advocate and which ones you you uh, reject and how you present that to other people and you know into a dynamic that's like it's it's like after a hurricane or a tornado or or a natural disaster where you know that there, there's going to be it's going to be difficult to determine what course of action to take and there's going to be a lot of information coming from a lot of sources so you start being really careful about modulating your inputs via trust like if you're Uncle tells you, "Hey, I hear that you can go to this place and you can get water." They told they said they're saying the power is going to come on in, 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 in like two weeks. I experienced this after Katrina. I remember it really well. And uh, you'll often say in that environment, "Yeah, okay, cool. Where, where did you hear that?" Like you started being concerned about the sources. But if it's someone who seems trustworthy off the bat, like if it's a firefighter or something, you will just go, "Thank you very much." And then you will go to your people and say, "Hey, I heard that this." is uh, when this is happening, they'll ask where it comes from. Uh, the firefighter told me, and they're like, okay, cool, cool. You have that dynamic taking place. I feel like a lot of what's going on now is similar in the sense that the information gatekeepers have collapsed on us. And then at the same time, we've all been invited to the conversation in a way we weren't before. And you can be on CNN's website, and then in one click, you're just on some person's YouTube page who's telling you whatever they think and feel. You have to have a different sensibility to, to about how you're going to determine what is and isn't information that's useful to you. And if you're not an expert on the topic, it becomes really difficult. I've mentioned Tom Stafford again because he, he said something that's so cool that I can't help but repeat it over and over again. I just tweeted this out recently because he was on the, on the show. He said, um, to his mind, it's like, it's like germs in that germs were always a problem for human beings, especially in groups. But then eventually we had cities, and now it's a real problem. Now you have all sorts of issues that come with, along with, with uh, poor sanitation. And 
the solution to that was that cities had to develop ways to do sanitation at scale and individuals had to learn best practices, boil, boil your water, wash your hands. He said the same thing was, was true with like misinformation. Like misinformation has always been a problem in human communities and the truth has always been hard to come by. So he feels like we will have to learn, uh, learn the generational equivalent of washing our hands and when it comes to our platforms, the equivalent of sanitation, when it comes to those things. And the good news is that our brains are already ready for that, eager for that. Like we, we evolved to be able to work in, in that dynamic thanks to these, this interactionist system of evaluation, production and evaluation and everything in between. I mean, I think we even see that already in like the current generation of middle schoolers who are aware of the fact that likes on social media are really bad for your mental health. And so like they're already rejecting this whole system um, that plagued the generation before them, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the students that I teach now at, U- at USF who are you know, natives, digital natives, they they would not for a second think that Wikipedia was a reasonable enough source for you know X, <laughs> Y, and Z. Even though a lot of times actually Wikipedia is a great source. I mean, I use it all the time because it has like you know this 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 these systems built in. But they they understand that you you know you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So I you know I think we are there are yeah we we see these shifts already. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about one of the things that the chapters I found really fascinating was the one on deep canvassing um, and kind of the tools that, you know, people use to go door to door. So tell us a little bit about what, what we've learned or what you learned, I should say, from these individuals whose job it is to change minds one person at a time. I'm very happy to talk about it. The The freshest thing in the book is that uh, this was absolutely completely off my radar. I had no idea that it was going to be such a big deal. For me, in my own like my connection to it now at this point, it just feels like it's it's been cleaved into my DNA. I love it. It's um before I get into deep canvassing, one of the things I discovered in the research was I found all these different organizations that are actively a b testing different ways to reach out to people and get past the frustrations that we're all experiencing when it comes to trying to reach out to people who either disagree with you strongly about a fact based thing like the global warming or whether the earth is, is round or flat or attitude-based things like politics and, and uh, social issues. And I eventually met all of them in person all around the country. And what blew me away was that none of them were aware of each other. Most of them had not taken a look at the, at the literature or the scientific um, research that may have been relevant to what they were doing, yet they all arrived at the same technique pretty much. And the technique, when it has an order to it, like one, two, three, four, five, it's the same order. And what I f- found was uh, it's very close to motivational interviewing and other things you will find in in therapeutic models, because those are places where they were doing A-B testing and they went with what worked and threw away what didn't. And they also arrived at similar things. And it's, I say in the book, it's akin to if you were going to build an airplane from scratch, no matter where you did that on earth, the airplane would eventually look pretty much like an airplane looks because you're dealing with physics and physics is the same wherever you're making an airplane with persuasion techniques. And lately I've been trying to get away from even calling it that, you know, these conversational practices, the ones that deliver the results or avoid bad results tend to look similar because all this underlying psychology and all this underlying neurophysiology and all this underlying elements that have arrived via natural selection are similar among human beings. We're geared up to send and receive messages in a certain way. 
So I talk about several different groups that do this, but the one that I open with is Deep Canvassing. That's who I spent the most time with. They are in Los Angeles. They're, ba- they're all over the world now, but they started in Los Angeles at the LGBT Center of Los Angeles. And they started up, uh, they had no intention of creating a technique like this. They just had all these activist groups and they had this division of the LGBT Center called The Lab, L-A-B, Learn, Act, Build. And their job is to try to figure out ways of communicating. And they had expected to win when it came to Prop 8. I don't know if anybody remembers this, but there there was a vote in the early days of same-sex marriage as to whether or not that would be legal in, in California, and uh, they lost it. Prop 8, we called it in San Francisco. It's yeah. It, it was shocking, right? It was. Uh, they all told me this. Like the the idea was like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. we lost, <laughs> especially in this state, especially in in very LGBT at the time, uh, friendly compared to other places in the country, friendly areas like San Francisco and and Los Angeles and so on. So they just wanted to understand how did that happen. And Dave Fleischer, who runs that organization, he had this crazy idea, which was, how about we just go and ask everybody why they did that? Why did they vote against it? Because the polling was weird. It seemed like there were a lot of people who you would think would be people who would vote yes on this, who voted no. And they created these listening brigades. They created, they would go out like 75 people at a time. They had uh, really strong statistics about areas and, and their polling was really nice. So they could go, they knew where they could go, where they would probably meet people who disagreed. And they would knock on the doors and just ask, like, hey, why did you vote on this? And in that process, they got back really great results related to what was the actual attitude that had been uh, manipulated by the anti-gay uh, marriage propaganda at the time. Or I say propaganda, that's my bias going forward. <laughs> it was just, it was messaging from people who didn't want that to happen. And they were doing these things like ads where they'd have this little girl run into the room and go, mommy, mommy, I learned in school today that a a princess can marry a princess and a prince can marry a prince. And then the, mo- the mom would be like, what? And then a guy would walk on like it was a car commercial and go, you don't think this can happen? It's happening right now. And they would scare you into thinking that you didn't have agency over the over your children and that, you, that your parental privileges were being taken away from you. And that's what they were poking at people with. And it was almost uh, irrelevant what came after, but they were saying one example of that is this same-sex marriage thing. So they realized that was the issue because once they, when they were asking people why they voted against it, this would be spoken about. But then after a couple of months, people weren't talking about those ads anymore. And that in and of itself would be an interesting story to tell. It's just what happened next was when they started ask, knocking on people's doors and asking about this, people were so eager to talk about it that the conversations would spin up to like 10, 15, 20 minutes. And they just wanted to record it so they could show it to other people in their organization. And they they started recording the conversations and they started video recording them. And while they did that, they noticed every once in a while, someone would explain why they had voted the way they had voted. And they would, in the conversation, change their own mind about the issue. Like just in elaborating why they, how they felt about it, they'd start going, hmm, maybe I was wrong to do that. And they were like, something's up here. Let's focus on those. They started gathering those together and trying to see what did we say and what did they say. And the long story short of it is is they eventually recorded nearly 17,000 conversations on video, reviewed all of them, and then used those to A-B test how do we get better at having a conversation where the other person's attitude will shift on this particular issue. And they developed something that they now call deep canvassing. 
And it, it works so well and so quickly that there are a number of social scientists that I uh, talk about in the book who and I, who I spent a lot of time with who flew out there and did it and met those people and researched them and quantified it and tried to figure out what's going on, political scientists, psychologists, and so on. And I did the same thing. I went several times and I went door to door and tried to learn the technique and watch it in action. And it's deceptively simple. It's counterintuitive in a way that makes you feel weird that it's counterintuitive. It You knock on someone's door, you you are very honest about what you're there to talk about. And you say, I'm only here to listen. I'm only here to see. I'm only here to understand what's going on. And you ask them to tell you how they feel about the issue. And then you start asking them where they first heard about it. Where did this come from, do you think? And they also introduce, thanks to the research, where are you at on a scale? If I was to put this on a scale from like zero to 10 or one to 100, where would you put yourself on that scale? And it, this is the, was the, sort of the first powerful element that was added to it. This is in all the techniques because it gives a person a lattice by which to engage in, in introspection and metacognition. And you can do this right now for anything. Like um, let's say uh, if you're watching the latest season of um, Stranger Things, like where, do you, where would you put it on a scale of one to 10? Like how much you like it? And, and asking, just asking that question and you, you say, well, I don't know, maybe I'll give it on seven. And then you ask, why a seven and not a six? Why, why, was, why is that a good number for you? And then the conversation that takes place after I've asked you to introspect as to why you feel that way, why, why your level of certainty or your attitude is in that space, turns out to be an incredibly powerful conversation to have about anything at all. And instead of challenging that person, I mean, it could be like a really contentious issue. Like it could be like currently like gun control, where I would say, People should be able to own tanks and shoulder-mounted rocket launchers, whereas you know one is that guns should be illegal across the board. How do you feel about that? And then if they were to say, like, I'm a seven, eight, nine, or 10, and you don't react like, oh, I can't believe you said that, just not reacting in that way is a very powerful thing to experience because we're very sensitive to being shamed. We're very sensitive to, am I, am I an us and them in this situation? Is it possible that by what I say might get back to my community and will lead to my ostracism. We're so sensitive to that, that when a person just compassionately, empathetically, non-judgmentally listens to what we have to say about an issue, it gives us a newfound space to introspect and metacognate about it. And then every technique does something different at that point, but most of them have ways of helping a person unspool where the attitude comes from, why it's so strong, and then asks them about moments in their life where maybe things have happened where they could consider other viewpoints, or maybe there are other people who see it differently. I wonder how come they feel that way. And just in having that one conversation, people very often within 20 minutes or so will talk themselves out of the position that they're in and they'll move somewhere on the attitude scale, or they'll, if it's a fact-based issue, their certainty will move around a little bit. If it's a value-based issue, the value will move up and down in their hierarchy. And it's unbelievable that's what how deep canvassing works. And at this point, they're applying it to every every issue you can imagine. It was even used in the uh, last presidential election with phone banks that called people over and over again and just engaged in deep canvassing with them. And that's one of the techniques I talk about. The others do different things. You know, if you're if you're trying to affect a behavior, motivational interviewing is is wonderful for that, as demonstrated by its long history in uh, therapeutic situations. And if you're really trying to to hammer on something that's like uh, strongly fact-based, something that's a, a hardcore belief that could be, has to be uh, supported by evidence, street epistemology is really useful in, in that regard. But they all have very similar um, methodologies. 
Yeah. So um, for our listeners, David McRaney's new book, How Minds Change, is available now at booksellers everywhere. Um, and I, I really have to say that it's in a time like 2022 is a shitty year for a lot of us. <laughs> and um, I find this like really hopeful. And at a time, you know, like, yeah. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I, I, it turns out this is a punk <laughs> attitude to have right now. Like I should be wearing a leather jacket. Uh, I, I'm weirdly optimistic in a way that I wasn't before I wrote this book. So I'm glad that you're having some takeaway like that from it. Yeah. I mean, so like, you know, we just have maybe time for like one more uh, quick thought. And and I, I the, the the story that still sticks with me is Charlie, I don't know how to say his last name, Veitch? Veitch. Veitch. Okay. Who was this truther, um, you know, who, who, who had this like epiphany moment when he was on a reality TV show, which is so funny in so many other like ways, like that <laughs> it's like reality TV, you know, failing there, you know, it's supposed to be that they, they show a bunch of truthers who go and like listen to a whole bunch of evidence of, of 9-11 and then and come home still believing that it was all a conspiracy. And here you have this one lone wolf who's like, huh, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, and then was completely ostracized. And, you know, the fallout was 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 really pretty, pretty substantial. But I wonder if you could just like, if you had to drill down and think about what happened in that moment in the book, you kind of describe how you know, he was listening to these architects talk about the facts behind, you know, the 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 steel melting and you know all these things that he kind of believed and slowly they were chipping away at each of the facts that he had held onto. Like why ultimately did he change his mind and none of the people who were in the room with him did? That's where the book starts because it's the biggest mystery to me. And it was like a paradox because if the facts don't work on people, why they work on this guy? But at the same time, if the facts work on people, why didn't they work on everybody else? Right. So it seemed like I was there was that, you know, that moment sometimes, whether you're a journalist or you're a scientist, there was a moment where you'll realize, I think I'm not even asking the right question. Like, I think that I'm so wrong about this that I don't know how to ask a question about it. And my question seems uh, nonsensical because I have all these assumptions I'm bringing to the table that are being busted apart by the very fact that I need to ask this question. That's what was happening there. I didn't. I, I spent time with Charlie. I spent time with people who left Westboro Baptist Church. I even went to the Valentine's Day services at Westboro Baptist Church to get a real, like, insight into what goes on there. There's a chapter that's not not in the book that I'll eventually release as extra material where I spent time with people who were uh, in the Moonies, and then of course I spent time with people who were in the in flat Earth or in left flat Earth. What happened with Charlie was that it was, the reason it was mysterious is I wasn't really aware of how important. And there's different terms for it now. Some people don't like using the term tribal psychology, or some people just want to use partisanship or in-group, out-group bias, all those things. I don't think I was really aware of how powerful that was or how fundamental it was to modulating our certainty or lack thereof in different situations. How in a moment of conflict or in a moment where you have you feel like your identity is at stake, or you feel like you are the reason that you even got into this community in the first place or these sort of identity, you were seeking belonging. Belonging goals were the impetus. They were the motivation. And what you're getting out of being in this community is satisfying those drives. And you have developed a strong group identity that is stronger than any identity that you brought to the table before that. And especially if you're in a time of, where things are contentious, you're often confronted with people who are just really, really mean to you and, and shame you for the fact that you have these beliefs or thoughts or that you're in that community. And uh, it's if you're in an, an information ecosystem like we have today where it's very easy to go find other people who share your anxieties. And because they were motivated by those anxieties, they 
cherry picked the evidence and found these things to be the things that felt right to them. And you could just move off into that group and stay with that group and it feels nice. But if you sometimes you go into a, a group like that with flat earthers, they have to use separate dating apps because they have moved into a community where it's, you reveal this about yourself and you're instantaneously, you know, uh, possibly removed from the gene pool. If you're a con conspiracy theorist, you're facing all those things and you would never even call yourself a conspiracy theorist. You just call yourself what you are. In his case, he considers himself a truther. And he had moved so far up in that world that it was also where his income was coming from. So he had multiple motivations, identity motivations, uh, financial motivations, reputation management, all the stuff. The other people who came to that reality program who were shown all that evidence, they were in all of that and they were trapped within it. Like You have to have empathy for the fact that they face so many costs for updating their beliefs and then presenting them to the rest of the people who are around them that uh, in many ways, they're trapped inside it. They don't have the freedom to change their mind. That's not what, what it feels inside it. When, I don't know if they would ever articulate it, but that's what it feels like. What made Charlie different was he had wandered into a different community at the same time. They were called truth juice. And there's a thing in psychology called a value affirmation, and there's a pretty good research into it. And there's all sorts of ways to manipulate it in studies. And the values that led him into 9-11 truth world were these values that were being pretty much satisfied there. But when he found truth juice, they were being strongly satisfied. And he felt more like himself in that community. He had a foot in both worlds. And in that community, they were more about like the truth you get from psychedelics and meditation and that sort of thing. They still questioned authority. They still were open to all sorts of things. They still were worried about institutions. But the fact that he had that community to fall back on meant he had a social safety net. And when he approached all that counter-attitudinal information, all that stuff that challenged his assumptions, he was open to it in a way that they could not be open to it. The other truthers couldn't be open to it. And he was it was okay for him to be ostracized by one community because he could fall into the social safety net of the other. And it's something that I feel like we should acknowledge when we face off with people, even in our own families, that they may not have such a social safety net. If they don't, you're not going to be able to reach out to them or persuade them if you don't do the work that would be required to clue them into the fact that they actually might have such a social safety net or create that for them or offer it to them. That's what happened with Megan Phelps Roper at the in Westboro, like someone reached out to her in a non-judgmental, compassionate, empathetic way, offered their hand, did not shame them for what they believed, and then said, you know, there are other people who have these strong values that you have, but they don't they don't depend on the framework you're depending on to satisfy them. And that's that's how she found her off-ramp out of Westboro. And it's a huge insight. And it took a long time to for me to see that what was going on because I just felt like, well, just just show these people facts. They're facts. But the truth is. I have the freedom to look at those facts in a way that they don't. And that was something that wasn't clear to me because like any other human, I am not aware of the motivations that have led me to this thing or why I have placed my trust in particular individuals that other people don't feel are trustworthy. It's just something that's not immediately apparent until you get into that objective frame that is very difficult to reach. But it is also can explain why deep canvassing works, right? Because essentially, you, in front of you, you have someone who could potentially serve as that social safety net because they're not judging you and they're showing compassion and empathy. And, uh, you know, all ties together. Absolutely. And, it, and it's like the promise of, oh, wow, I've never actually met someone who is on the other side of this issue who's just wanted to hang out and talk with me. It's weird. Yeah. I, I, was, I was very against writing a book that could be used as like how to win friends and influence people. I didn't want to do like a Cialdini type influence type thing. 
you don't even need any of that. Like it's a, it seems so simple. It seems like it's not even a thing to say, yeah, if you open that space up to another human being, they almost can't help because all the, all the reasoning is taking place on their side. You're not copy pasting your reasoning into them. You're opening a space for them to introspect. And it, it doesn't seem like it could be true, but just offering that to a person gives them the opportunity to change their own mind, which is the only way that minds change anyway. But I mean, if I'd been a, a therapist, I probably, I'm, I'm hope I'm looking forward to therapists reading this and going, yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> that's, I know that's why we have a thing. Yep. <laughs> that's what you pay the big money for. <laughs> Is that a room full of empathy? Well, uh, David McCraney, thank you so much uh, for coming on to Inquiring Minds and for writing this like really, truly hopeful book after many years of cynicism. <laughs> I appreciate it so much. I'm a, and thank you for inviting me and thank you for the work that you do. I, I am so happy there are all sorts of us doing something in this world and I love watching it evolve and mature. And uh, you're a big part of that. And I really appreciate your work. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiring minds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and this episode was edited by Daniel Link. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.